Part One, Chapters Nine and Ten of Democracy in America, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Democracy in America, Volume Two by Alexis de Tocqueville, translated by Henry Reeve. Part One, Chapter Nine. The example of the Americans does not prove that a democratic people can have no aptitude and no taste for science, literature, or art. It must be acknowledged that amongst few of the civilized nations of our time have the higher sciences made less progress than in the United States, and in few have great artists, fine poets, or celebrated writers been more rare. Many Europeans, struck by this fact, have looked upon it as a natural and inevitable result of equality and they have supposed that if a democratic state of society and democratic institutions were ever to prevail over the whole earth, the human mind would gradually find its beacon-lights grow dim, and men would relapse into a period of darkness. To reason thus is, I think, to confound several ideas which it is important to divide and to examine separately. It is to mingle, unintentionally, what is democratic with what is only American." The religion professed by the first emigrants, and bequeathed by them to their descendants, simple in its form of worship, austere and almost harsh in its principles, and hostile to external symbols and to ceremonial pomp, is naturally unfavourable to the fine arts, and only yields a reluctant sufferance to the pleasures of literature. The Americans are a very old and a very enlightened people, who have fallen upon a new and unbounded country, where they may extend themselves at pleasure, and which they may fertilise without difficulty. This state of things is without a parallel in the history of the world. In America, then, every one finds facilities, unknown elsewhere, for making or increasing his fortune. The spirit of gain is always on the stretch, and the human mind, constantly diverted from the pleasures of imagination and the labours of the intellect, is there swayed by no impulse but the pursuit of wealth. Not only are manufacturing and commercial classes to be found in the United States, as they are in all other countries, but what never occurred elsewhere, the whole community is simultaneously engaged in productive industry and commerce. I am convinced that, if the Americans had been alone in the world, with the freedom and the knowledge acquired by their forefathers, and the passions which are their own, they would not have been slow to discover that progress cannot long be made in the application of the sciences without cultivating the theory of them, that all the arts are perfected by one another, and, however absorbed they might have been by the pursuit of the principal object of their desires, they would speedily have admitted that it is necessary to turn aside from it occasionally, in order the better to attain it in the end. The taste for the pleasures of the mind is moreover so natural to the heart of civilized man, that amongst the polite nations which are least disposed to give themselves up to these pursuits, a certain number of citizens are always to be found who take part in them. This intellectual craving, when once felt, would very soon have been satisfied. But at the very time when the Americans were naturally inclined to require nothing of science but its special applications to the useful arts and the means of rendering life comfortable, learned and literary Europe was engaged in exploring the common sources of truth, and in improving at the same time all that can minister to the pleasures or satisfy the wants of man. At the head of the enlightened nations of the old world, the inhabitants of the United States more particularly distinguished one, to which they were closely united by a common origin and by kindred habits. Amongst this people they found distinguished men of science, artists of skill, writers of eminence, and they were enabled to enjoy the treasures of the intellect without requiring to labour in amassing them. 
I cannot consent to separate America from Europe in spite of the ocean which intervenes. I consider the people of the United States as that portion of the English people which is commissioned to explore the wilds of the New World, whilst the rest of the nation, enjoying more leisure and less harassed by the drudgery of life, may devote its energies to thought and enlarge in all directions the empire of the mind. The position of the Americans is therefore quite exceptional, and it may be believed that no democratic people will ever be placed in a similar one. Their strictly puritanical origin, their exclusively commercial habits, even the country they inhabit, which seems to divert their minds from the pursuit of science, literature, and the arts, the proximity of Europe, which allows them to neglect these pursuits without relapsing into barbarism, a thousand special causes, of which I have only been able to point out the most important, have singularly concurred to fix the mind of the American upon purely practical objects. His passions, his wants, his education, and everything about him seem to unite in drawing the native of the United States earthward. His religion alone bids him turn, from time to time, a transient and distracted glance to heaven. Let us cease, then, to view all democratic nations under the mask of the American people, and let us attempt to survey them at length with their own proper features. It is possible to conceive a people not subdivided into any castes or scale of ranks, in which the law, recognizing no privileges, should divide inherited property into equal shares, but which, at the same time, should be without knowledge and without freedom. Nor is this an empty hypothesis. A despot may find that it is his interest to render his subjects equal and to leave them ignorant, in order more easily to keep them slaves. Not only would a democratic people of this kind show neither aptitude nor taste for science, literature, or art, but it would probably never arrive at the possession of them. The law of descent would of itself provide for the destruction of fortunes at each succeeding generation, and new fortunes would be acquired by none. The poor man, without either knowledge or freedom, would not so much as conceive the idea of raising himself to wealth, and the rich man would allow himself to be degraded to poverty, without a notion of self-defence. Between these two members of the community, complete and invincible equality would soon be established. No one would then have time or taste to devote himself to the pursuits or pleasures of the intellect, but all men would remain paralyzed by a state of common ignorance and equal servitude. When I conceive a democratic society of this kind, I fancy myself in one of those low, close, and gloomy abodes where the light which breaks in from without soon faints and fades away. A sudden heaviness overpowers me, and I grope through the surrounding darkness to find the aperture which will restore me to daylight and the air. But all this is not applicable to men already enlightened who retain their freedom after having abolished from amongst them those peculiar and hereditary rights which perpetuated the tenure of property in the hands of certain individuals or certain bodies. When men living in a democratic state of society are enlightened, they readily discover that they are confined and fixed within no limits which constrain them to take up with their present fortune. They all therefore conceive the idea of increasing it. If they are free, they all attempt it, but all do not succeed in the same manner. The legislator, it is true, no longer grants privileges, but they are bestowed by nature. As natural inequality is very great, fortunes become unequal as soon as every man exerts all his faculties to get rich. The law of descent prevents the establishment of wealthy families, but it does not prevent the existence of wealthy individuals. 
It constantly brings back the members of the community to a common level, from which they as constantly escape, and the inequality of fortunes augments in proportion as knowledge is diffused and liberty increased. A sect which arose in our time and was celebrated for its talents and its extravagance proposed to concentrate all property into the hands of a central power, whose function it should afterwards be to parcel it out to individuals, according to their capacity. This would have been a method of escaping from that complete and eternal equality which seems to threaten democratic society, but it would be a simpler and less dangerous remedy to grant no privilege to any, giving to all equal cultivation and equal independence, and leaving every one to determine his own position. Natural inequality will very soon make way for itself, and wealth will spontaneously pass into the hands of the most capable. Free and democratic communities, then, will always contain a considerable number of people enjoying opulence or competency. The wealthy will not be so closely linked to each other as the members of the former aristocratic class of society. Their propensities will be different, and they will scarcely ever enjoy leisure as secure or as complete, but they will be far more numerous than those who belong to that class of society could ever be. These persons will not be strictly confined to the cares of practical life, and they will still be able, though in different degrees, to indulge in the pursuits and pleasures of the intellect. In those pleasures they will indulge, for if it be true that the human mind leans on one side to the narrow, the practical, and the useful, it naturally rises on the other to the infinite, the spiritual, and the beautiful. Physical wants confine it to the earth, but as soon as the tie is loosened it will unbend itself again. Not only will the number of those who can take an interest in the productions of the mind be enlarged, but the taste for intellectual enjoyment will descend, step by step, even to those who, in aristocratic societies, seem to have neither time nor ability to indulge in them. When hereditary wealth, the privileges of rank, and the prerogatives of birth have ceased to be, and when every man derives his strength from himself alone, it becomes evident that the chief cause of disparity between the fortunes of men is the mind. Whatever tends to invigorate, to extend, or to adorn the mind, instantly rises to great value. The utility of knowledge becomes singularly conspicuous even to the eyes of the multitude. Those who have no taste for its charms set store upon its results, and make some efforts to acquire it. In free and enlightened democratic ages there is nothing to separate men from each other, or to retain them in their peculiar sphere. They rise or sink with extreme rapidity. All classes live in perpetual intercourse from their great proximity to each other. They communicate and intermingle every day. They imitate and envy one another. This suggests to the people many ideas, notions, and desires which it would never have entertained if the distinctions of rank had been fixed and society at rest. In such nations the servant never considers himself as an entire stranger to the pleasures and toils of his master, nor the poor man to those of the rich. The rural population assimilates itself to that of the towns, and the provinces to the capital. No one easily allows himself to be reduced to the mere material cares of life, and the humblest artisan casts at times an eager and a furtive glance into the higher regions of the intellect. People do not read with the same notions or in the same manner as they do in an aristocratic community, but the circle of readers is unceasingly expanded, till it includes all the citizens. 
As soon as the multitude begins to take an interest in the labors of the mind, it finds out that to excel in some of them is a powerful method of acquiring fame, power, or wealth. The restless ambition which equality begets instantly takes this direction, as it does all others. The number of those who cultivate science, letters, and the arts becomes immense. The intellectual world starts into prodigious activity. Everyone endeavors to open for himself a path there, and to draw the eyes of the public after him. Something analogous occurs to what happens in society in the United States, politically considered. What is done is often imperfect, but the attempts are innumerable, and, although the results of individual effort are commonly very small, the total amount is always very large. It is therefore not true to assert that men living in democratic ages are naturally indifferent to science, literature, and the arts. Only it must be acknowledged that they cultivate them after their own fashion and bring to the task their own peculiar qualifications and deficiencies. Chapter 10 Why the Americans are more addicted to practical than to theoretical science if a democratic state of society and democratic institutions do not stop the career of the human mind, they incontestably guide it in one direction in preference to another. Their effects, thus circumscribed, are still exceedingly great, and I trust I may be pardoned if I pause for a moment to survey them. We had occasion, in speaking of the philosophical method of the American people, to make several remarks which must here be turned to account. Equality begets in man the desire of judging of everything for himself. It gives him, in all things, a taste for the tangible and the real, a contempt for tradition and for forms. These general tendencies are principally discernible in the peculiar subject of this chapter. Those who cultivate the sciences amongst a democratic people are always afraid of losing their way in visionary speculation. They mistrust systems. They adhere closely to facts and the study of facts with their own senses as they do not easily defer to the mere name of any fellow-man, they are never inclined to rest upon any man's authority. But, on the contrary, they are unremitting in their efforts to point out the weaker points of their neighbors' opinions. Scientific precedents have very little weight with them. They are never long detained by the subtlety of the schools, nor ready to accept big words for sterling coin. They penetrate as far as they can into the principal parts of the subject which engages them and they expound them in the vernacular tongue. Scientific pursuits, then, follow a freer and a safer course, but a less lofty one. The mind may, as it appears to me, divide science into three parts. The first comprises the most theoretical principles, and those more abstract notions whose application is either unknown or very remote. The second is composed of those general truths which still belong to pure theory, but lead, nevertheless, by a straight and short road to practical results. Methods of application and means of execution make up the third. Each of these different portions of science may be separately cultivated, although reason and experience show that none of them can prosper long if it be absolutely cut off from the two others. In America, the purely practical part of science is admirably understood, and careful attention is paid to the theoretical portion which is immediately requisite to application. On this head, the Americans always display a clear, free, original, and inventive power of mind. But hardly anyone in the United States devotes himself to the essentially theoretical and abstract portion of human knowledge. 
in this respect the americans carry to excess a tendency which is i think discernible though in a less degree amongst all democratic nations nothing is more necessary to the culture of the higher sciences or of the more elevated departments of science than meditation and nothing is less suited to meditation than the structure of democratic society we do not find there as amongst an aristocratic people one class which clings to a state of repose because it is well off and another which does not venture to stir because it despairs of improving its condition every one is actively in motion some in quest of power others of gain in the midst of this universal tumult this incessant conflict of jarring interests this continual stride of men after fortune where is that calm to be found which is necessary for the deeper combinations of the intellect how can the mind dwell upon any single point when everything whirls around it and man himself is swept and beaten onwards by the heady current which rolls all things in its course but the permanent agitation which subsists in the bosom of a peaceable and established democracy must be distinguished from the tumultuous and revolutionary movements which almost always attend the birth and growth of democratic society when a violent revolution occurs amongst a highly civilized people it cannot fail to give a sudden impulse to their feelings and their opinions this is more particularly true of democratic revolutions which stir up all the classes of which a people is composed and beget at the same time inordinate ambition in the breast of every member of the community the french made most surprising advances in the exact sciences at the very time at which they were finishing the destruction of the remains of their former feudal society yet this sudden fecundity is not to be attributed to democracy but to the unexampled revolution which attended its growth what happened at that period was a special incident and it would be unwise to regard it as the test of a general principle great revolutions are not more common amongst democratic nations than amongst others i am even inclined to believe that they are less so but there prevails amongst those populations a small distressing motion a sort of incessant jostling of men which annoys and disturbs the mind without exciting or elevating it men who live in democratic communities not only seldom indulge in meditation but they naturally entertain very little esteem for it a democratic state of society and democratic institutions plunge the greater part of men in constant active life and the habits of mind which are suited to an active life are not always suited to a contemplative one the man of action is frequently obliged to content himself with the best he can get because he would never accomplish his purpose if he chose to carry every detail to perfection he has perpetually occasion to rely on ideas which he has not had leisure to search to the bottom for he is much more frequently aided by the opportunity of an idea than by its strict accuracy and in the long run he risks less in making use of some false principles than in spending his time in establishing all his principles on the basis of truth the world is not led by long or learned demonstrations a rapid glance at particular incidents the daily study of the fleeting passions of the multitude the accidents of the time and the art of turning them to account decide all its affairs in the ages in which active life is the condition of almost every one men are therefore generally led to attach an excessive value to the rapid bursts and superficial conceptions of the intellect and on the other hand to depreciate below their true standard its slower and deeper labours 
This opinion of the public influences the judgment of the men who cultivate the sciences. They are persuaded that they may succeed in those pursuits without meditation, or deterred from such pursuits as demanded. There are several methods of studying the sciences. Amongst a multitude of men you will find a selfish, mercantile, and trading taste for the discoveries of the mind, which must not be confounded with that disinterested passion which is kindled in the heart of the few. A desire to utilize knowledge is one thing, the pure desire to know is another. I do not doubt that in a few minds and far between an ardent, inexhaustible love of truth springs up, self-supported, and living in ceaseless fruition without ever attaining the satisfaction which it seeks. This ardent love it is, this proud, disinterested love of what is true, which raises men to the abstract sources of truth, to draw their mother-knowledge thence. If Pascal had had nothing in view but some large gain, or even if he had been stimulated by the love of fame alone, I cannot conceive that he would ever have been able to rally all the powers of his mind as he did for the better discovery of the most hidden things of the Creator. When I see him, as it were, tear his soul from the midst of all the cares of life to devote it wholly to these researches, and, prematurely snapping the links which bind the frame to life, die of old age before forty, I stand amazed, and I perceive that no ordinary cause is at work to produce efforts so extraordinary. The future will prove whether these passions, at once so rare and so productive, come into being and into growth as easily in the midst of democratic as in aristocratic communities. For myself, I confess that I am slow to believe it. In aristocratic society, the class which gives the tone to opinion and has the supreme guidance of affairs, being permanently and hereditarily placed above the multitude, naturally conceives a lofty idea of itself and of man. It loves to invent for him noble pleasures, to carve out splendid objects for his ambition. Aristocracies often commit very tyrannical and very inhuman actions, but they rarely entertain grovelling thoughts, and they show a kind of haughty contempt of little pleasures, even whilst they indulge in them. The effect is greatly to raise the general pitch of society. In aristocratic ages, vast ideas are commonly entertained of the dignity, the power, and the greatness of men. These opinions exert their influence on those who cultivate the sciences, as well as on the rest of the community. They facilitate the natural impulse of the mind to the highest regions of thought, and they naturally prepare it to conceive a sublime, nay, almost a divine, love of truth. Men of science at such periods are consequently carried away by theory, and it even happens that they frequently conceive an inconsiderate contempt for the practical part of learning. Archimedes, says Plutarch, quote, was of so lofty a spirit that he never condescended to write any treatise on the manner of constructing all these engines of offence and defence, and as he held this science of inventing and putting together engines, and all arts, generally speaking, which tended to any useful end in practice, to be vile, low, and mercenary, he spent his talents and his studious hours in writing of those things only whose beauty and subtlety had in them no admixture of necessity. Such is the aristocratic aim of science. In democratic nations it cannot be the same. The greater part of the men who constitute these nations are extremely eager in the pursuit of actual and physical gratification. 
as they are always dissatisfied with the position which they occupy, and are always free to leave it, they think of nothing but the means of changing their fortune, or of increasing it. To minds thus predisposed, every new method which leads by a shorter road to wealth, every machine which spares labour, every instrument which diminishes the cost of production, every discovery which facilitates pleasures or augments them, seems to be the grandest effort of the human intellect. It is chiefly from these motives that a democratic people addicts itself to scientific pursuits, that it understands, and that it respects them. In aristocratic ages, science is more particularly called upon to furnish gratification to the mind, in democracies to the body. You may be sure that the more a nation is democratic, enlightened, and free, the greater will be the number of these interested promoters of scientific genius, and the more will discoveries immediately applicable to productive industry confer gain, fame, and even power on their authors. For in democracies the working class takes a part in public affairs, and public honours, as well as pecuniary remuneration, may be awarded to those who deserve them. In a community thus organised, it may easily be conceived that the human mind may be led insensibly to the neglect of theory, and that it is urged, on the contrary, with unparalleled vehemence to the applications of science, or at least to that portion of theoretical science which is necessary to those who make such applications. In vain will some innate propensity raise the mind towards the loftier spheres of the intellect. Interest draws it down to the middle zone. There it may develop all its energy and restless activity. There it may engender all its wonders. These very Americans, who have not discovered one of the general laws of mechanics, have introduced into navigation an engine which changes the aspect of the world. Assuredly, I do not contend that the democratic nations of our time are destined to witness the extinction of the transcendent luminaries of man's intelligence, nor even that no new lights will ever start into existence. At the age at which the world has now arrived, and amongst so many cultivated nations, perpetually excited by the fever of productive industry, the bonds which connect the different parts of science together cannot fail to strike the observation, and the taste for practical science itself, if it be enlightened, ought to lead men not to neglect theory. In the midst of such numberless attempted applications of so many experiments, repeated every day, it is almost impossible that general laws should not frequently be brought to light, so that great discoveries would be frequent, though great inventors be rare. I believe, moreover, in the high calling of scientific minds. If the democratic principle does not, on the one hand, induce men to cultivate science for its own sake, on the other it enormously increases the number of those who do cultivate it. Nor is it credible that, from amongst so great a multitude, no speculative genius should from time to time arise, inflamed by the love of truth alone. Such a one, we may be sure, would dive into the deepest mysteries of nature, whatever be the spirit of his country or his age. He requires no assistance in his course, enough that he be not checked in it. All that I mean to say is this. Permanent inequality of conditions leads men to confine themselves to the arrogant and sterile research of abstract truths, whilst the social condition and the institutions of democracy prepare them to seek the immediate and useful practical results of the sciences. This tendency is natural and inevitable. It is curious to be acquainted with it, and it may be necessary to point it out.
if those who are called upon to guide the nations of our time clearly discerned from afar off these new tendencies which will soon be irresistible they would understand that possessing education and freedom men living in democratic ages cannot fail to improve the industrial part of science and that henceforward all the efforts of the constituted authorities ought to be directed to support the highest branches of learning and to foster the nobler passion for science itself in the present age the human mind must be coerced into theoretical studies it runs of its own accord to practical applications and instead of perpetually referring it to the minute examination of secondary effects it is well to divert it from them sometimes in order to raise it up to the contemplation of primary causes because the civilization of ancient rome perished in consequence of the invasion of the barbarians we are perhaps too apt to think that civilization cannot perish in any other manner if the light by which we are guided is ever extinguished it will dwindle by degrees and expire of itself by dint of close adherence to mere applications principles will be lost sight of and when the principles were wholly forgotten the methods derived from them would be ill pursued new methods could no longer be invented and men would continue to apply without intelligence and without art scientific processes no longer understood when europeans first arrived in china three hundred years ago they found that almost all the arts had reached a certain degree of perfection there and they were surprised that a people which had attained this point should not have gone beyond it at a later period they discovered some traces of the higher branches of science which were lost the nation was absorbed in productive industry the greater part of its scientific processes had been preserved but science itself no longer existed there this served to explain the strangely motionless state in which they found the minds of this people the chinese in following the track of their forefathers had forgotten the reasons by which the latter had been guided they still used the formula without asking for its meaning they retained the instrument but they no longer possessed the art of altering or renewing it the chinese then had lost the power of change for them to improve was impossible they were compelled at all times and in all points to imitate their predecessors lest they should stray into utter darkness by deviating for an instant from the path already laid down for them the source of human knowledge was all but dry and though the stream still ran on it could neither swell its waters nor alter its channel notwithstanding this china had subsisted peaceably for centuries the invaders who had conquered the country assumed the manners of the inhabitants and order prevailed there a sort of physical prosperity was everywhere discernible revolutions were rare and war was so to speak unknown it is then a fallacy to flatter ourselves with the reflection that the barbarians are still far from us for if there be some nations which allow civilization to be torn from their grasp there are others who trample it themselves under their feet end of part one chapters 9 and 10